There were three young men grew up in the same neighborhood. They were, they were actually best friends. They just sort of shared life together. Uh, they were different, but they were also um, had a lot in common. Uh, they grew up sharing many of the same values. Uh, often they might argue, uh, but they, they always sort of went to the same core. They, at times, one of the friends would dominate, and then maybe at another time, the other friend would dominate. But they grew up so close when they decided to go off to college, they went to the same school together. And, and this gave them an opportunity to, to spend even more time together. They'd take long walks. By this point, they're in a lot of philosophical and intellectual discussions. They don't always come down to the same place, but they at least agree on the same facts. Now, after they left college, they stayed in touch pretty closely, but like most friends, after years, they disconnected. They, in the long run, were nothing but Facebook friends. And and so years later, one of the friends is living on the West Coast, and he sends plane tickets to the other two friends and says, I want you to come join me. And so they fly out there, and they get together for a weekend, and the first few hours go really well as they reminisce about old times and share old stories and old memories. But as it goes on, the conversation becomes more and more awkward because the friend who's invited the other two friends is now completely self-centered. Everything he says has to do with him. And if they try to make a comment, he always turns it back around to him. So he's seeking out of these other two friends how they might benefit him and so really the weekend at least for two of the friends doesn't go so well the one friend thinks it was awesome but the other two think you know what they even care what I think now I read that parable in a book called missional by a man named Alan Roxburg and I want you to hear the parable explained it's sort of subtle the three friends in our story are scripture culture and church For some 1,500 years, they grew together, becoming deeply intertwined in Western life. At times, one was more dominant than the other, but they remained connected to one another. Uh, They'd grown apart over time to a place where they, even in today's world, hardly recognize each other. Each has shaped his own life, now often against the other. And when the three come together, scripture, culture, and church, often there's a profound disconnect. Because one of the three has lost perspective. In an effort to avoid being left out and to be relevant, it sees itself as the most important conversation partner. The only question the church asks of culture are church questions. How did I get information and data about this culture to make this church successful? And when the church comes to the biblical narratives, it is only with the church questions again. What does the Bible say about the church and its purpose? What are the guidelines for church health? This obsession means that primarily the church uses scripture and culture to mine information for itself. I found that quite riveting when I read that because I think all of us have picked up that there's a great shift that has gone on among us. Many people call the day that we live a post-Christian age. A smaller and smaller percentage of people in our nation are showing up like you are today for church. 
And we know in our culture, you can no longer assume that we're all talking from the same facts and the same information. In fact, the church in many ways seems to have lost its influence. We might even make a case today that Hollywood has more influence than the church on modern culture. And we might even say that Scripture has less impact on everyday life than the Kardashians. And so we see this shift. How do we deal with it? I was at a meeting last weekend where the the president of the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities was speaking about the awkward place that Christian schools are in right now. Just a few years ago, there was almost a threat over schools that if you did not accept the moral values that modern culture has, that they would cut off government scholarships for your students. Well, any of us knows if you do that, you you would close down every Christian college in America. And so the woman who was speaking was talking about how do we navigate this new world where everybody doesn't share our values. She was asking, is there any way to come out of this with a win-win situation? And as a church, as often in culture, is becoming more irrelevant, what do we do to remain relevant and to connect? And not just to be off on our own. And that's why we call this series Shift. What shift do we need to make to impact what's going on around us? Now, the good news is this shift is rooted in the nature of God. This shift is what God sent us to do at the beginning, and this shift is how the early church worked in a culture much more like ours today than in 1950. So we got some answers in Scripture. So let's interact with Scripture this morning. Go with me to John chapter 20. I call this the Forgotten Great Commission. This is where where John gives his rendition of what Jesus says to his disciples before he leaves. Let's go verse by verse. Verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They're afraid. Wouldn't you be? They've seen their leader crucified. They think their life is threatened. And so what have they done, man? They have have evacuated to this room. They have dead-bolted the door. They're simply trying to protect what they have. And let's be honest, are we not tempted to do the same thing in the crazy world we live in? Let's get together in our churches Let's just only interact with Christian businessmen and live in Christian neighborhoods and Christian schools. And let's just withdraw from this culture because it's too scary. And Jesus knew that was their reaction and our reaction. So he says, hey, guys, don't be afraid. Peace be with you. I'm with you. It's going to be okay. And then in verse 20, he gives the affirmation of that. After this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They now recognize that they are encountering the resurrected Jesus. Listen to me, my friends. That's the game changer. The game changer is that we serve not a dead God, but an alive God who can change everything, who's got that kind of power. And then he commissions them. I love how John gives Jesus words. And Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. God, guys, what we serve is a missionary God. A God who sent his son 
And now we see his son about to go back to heaven. And now he is sending us. Jesus says, you're in the place I was in when the father sent me. Forty times in the gospel. Jesus says, my father has sent me. And now he says to you and I and to that church, don't withdraw and deadbolt the door. Be a sent people. We think, oh my goodness, how can we do this? The world's a scary place, and most people don't even like us anymore. Look at verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful picture. In creation scene back in Genesis, we see God breathe on man, and he becomes a living soul. In the recreation scene, in John chapter 20, God once again breathes on man and says, you've got the power to do this. And we see this played out in Scripture. This same group that here in John chapter 20 has a dead board, the, the dead boat lot, because they're so afraid of the Jewish leaders, by the time we get a few chapters over to Acts chapter 4, and the Jewish leaders are threatening their death, they say, hey guys, we can't shut up. We've seen the resurrected Christ. And guys, the only legitimate explanation of that is the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. They were empowered to be that sent group of people. And then we run into a very challenging text, verse 23. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, what is that saying? That sounds rather challenging. Do we have the power to forgive sins? Well, guys, I think the text sounds complex, but my belief is that the meaning is simple. He's simply saying, I am, as the old hymn said, into our hands the gospel is given. We've been given this amazing good news that you can be free from your problems and free from your sins and here's the truth as we share it people's reaction will determine whether they are truly forgiven or not so we hear this commission how do we obey this call in a world that's changing so quickly around us i want to give you four sets of words that i think will help us to find this and get a handle on this the first set is attractional and missional. Say that with me. Attractional and missional. You just sounded like a preacher, okay? Because these are preacher terms. Nobody else uses the terms attractional and missional. But they're really good terms to describe how the church functions. So if you run into a preacher friend of yours in town and you want to appear theologically, you know, advanced, just say, is your church more attractional or missional? And they'll go, I can't believe you know about that. Well, guys, these are just sort of terms we use to describe how the church reaches out. I was looking at my library last night and, and just, because every different generation and decade sort of comes up with a, a different term than this, okay? I've I got a book about the externally focused church, the emerging church, the purpose-driven church. I mean, you name it, every few years we change the word. But these are two really good words. Now, the attractional church model is based on we want to build a church that's attractive, where, where, where you would want to bring your friends. So, so we try as a church to, to be attractive and to have uh, winsome services and have lots of programs and classes and things that meet people's needs. And in many ways, the Landmark Church has been built on this attractional model. 
If we do things well enough here, and you invite enough of your friends, then something really good can happen. And that's been a great model for us. In fact, today, I'm happy to report, we have the largest Landmark 101 class we've ever had. I think about 45, 50 people. And it's probably because of this attractional model that says, hey, come to church with me, you connect, and then we have a chance to share. But the model that we're looking at today is a, a more missional model that says, you know what, everybody's not willing to come here, so why don't we go there? We need to be, what Jesus explained to that early church, we need to be a group of people that are out being missionaries just like God was. And, and so this model says what happens in these four walls is not the end-all, be-all. It may not even be the most important time of your week. What may be just as important or more is when we permeate our city and our community, and we don't always speak it, but we always live out the gospel. And so many people would make a, a tension between attractional and missional. I, I don't think there is. In fact, Landmark has many missional elements. Our recovery ministry is extremely missional. Many of you have participated in inner city and Compassion 21 for years. That's getting out of the community. Many of you are part of Common Ground. Some of you are part of Hope-inspired ministry. And all those ministries say, you know what, it's not going to all happen here. If we really want to change what's going on, we've got to get out there. So we have both of those elements in our church, and we need to embrace them. The church should be attractive. It should be a place where you can bring a friend, an unbeliever, like in 1 Corinthians 14, who exclaims in the middle of the service, truly God is in this place. But it also must be a part of that great commission that as you go, wherever you go, you carry the gospel with you. In fact, I would say to you this morning, there are dangers in both of these models that we need to be aware of. Let's first of all look at dangers with the attractional model, okay? First of all is consumerism. In other words, what the church can easily become is we become a, a distributor of goods and services. So our pitch to you is if you'll come to Landmark, we'll give you great children's ministry, we'll give you great youth ministry, we'll give you great campus ministry, we'll give you, you know, if you've got a problem with depression, we'll help you, you got a problem with, and that's awesome. But if we're not careful, we just get people who are consuming, who say, well, why do you go to Landmark? Well, I go to Landmark because Landmark meets my needs. And so a traxional church has a big challenge to say, how do we turn consumers into people who give of their time, their money, and their effort? Also, the danger of the attractional model is it's very building-based and very staff-driven. It, it almost says indirectly, this is where it happens. And if we can just get people here, it will happen. But the problem with that is God wants it happening everywhere. And God doesn't look at just a few of us as ministers. The Bible talks about the priesthood of all believers that says all of us as we scatter from this place are ministers for God. You don't come here but just a few people can get on stage. This is not the only place the church is the church. The church needs to be missional. And let's say this about the danger of attractional. As our culture changes, it's going to become less and less effective. For instance, and you still can do this in Montgomery, Alabama. It's a little bit different, but we, we're, we're a little bit protected from this. 
If you meet someone, I have always felt comfortable growing up. One of the first questions I might ask somebody is, um, what's your church home? That was okay. Because there was an underlying assumption in culture that everybody was either in church or they wanted to be in church. I hate to tell you, but that's not a good assumption in the day that we live. And so some people, we're going to have to reach in a different way than just saying, hey, come to church. Now, as we talk about becoming a more missional church, we also need to be aware of the dangers on that side. The dangers are this can just turn into a social gospel. What we can do is we just get out in our culture and we find the needs of what's going on in our city and, and we meet these. And so we become what you might even call the newest nonprofit. And so churches go out and we get involved in community projects and ideas. But if we're not careful, we're just another nonprofit. Do you recognize this morning there are 2,400 nonprofits in Montgomery, Alabama trying to take care of our community? Or we just can be another one of them. If all we do is do that, that's what we become. Because the second danger identifies this no proclamation. If we're not careful, we just become do-gooders who go on our culture and meet. We feed the poor, and we try to help heal the sick, and we try to help the lonely. That's all awesome. But my friends, if the poor are fed, and the lonely are befriended, and the sick are healed, and they don't encounter Jesus Christ, they're still what? Lost. In fact, I've heard people even in the, in the missional movement say, well, we're going to go out in our city, and we're going to do all these good things. But when you go out... And I know what they're trying to avoid. Don't dare mention Jesus or even mention, certainly don't mention your church. And I've heard that, and that sounded so spiritual to me. Till about three weeks ago, it hit me why I didn't like it. That's like me saying, let's go take care of the cancer patients at the cancer ward. We've got what it takes to heal them, but we're just going to go change bandages and change bedpans. We're not going to give them what heals them. And so the missional model, we have to be careful that it doesn't simply become another social agency, but in the midst of that, there's proclamation. And another danger in the missional model, if we're not careful, is that gatherings like this are often discounted. Church doesn't need to meet. We don't need to worship together. We we just need to go out and be a part of all these really good projects. But I believe biblically, my friends, the two come together. So let me give you another set of words. Inviting and sending. Now, in the old attractional model, it was very effective to invite people to church. I love that. We're seeing the fruits of that today. But here's the problem is evangelism was almost boiled down to one thing, just invite somebody. And we do that because in our culture we live in, it still works. Today's a great example. September 24th, we'll have our annual friend day Often, that's the first step for someone to come to Christ. But here we are, guys. We're in a culture where those invitations are going to probably be less and less accepted. Honestly, it's more like the first century culture. You think the early church during those times of persecution was a big-time inviting church? Hey, man, would you come to church with me this Sunday? You might just die. No, I mean, that wasn't the way they they reached people, okay? 
So we've got to be this sent group of people that says, you know what, the only place the gospel is proclaimed is not in this building. The gospel is proclaimed in word and in deed everywhere I'm sent. Can you imagine all the places we're about to be sent? And guys, as you live out the gospel, there's a lot of people, guys, we can't get to come here to church. A lot of people, you, you can't even convince them to read their Bible. But here's what they'll have no choice about. They've got to read your life. If you work beside them, if you go to school with them, if you live in the neighborhood with them, hopefully they're going to see in your life the gospel. And what is the gospel? It's the power of Jesus to bring peace and to bring reconciliation. Because you are where you are, people should get along better. It's a place where we look after the downtrodden. It's a place where we affirm the justice for everybody. It's a place where we model what a family looks like and what a marriage looks like and what raising children looks like. Not that we're perfect, but we model it. Let me illustrate it this way. I, I don't know if you've been wrapped on the news the last 24 hours, but we had an incredible tragedy yesterday in Char- Charlottesville, Virginia. And there are three people dead today and many, many people injured. And it was an ugly, ugly scene that showed the worst in our culture. The mayor of that city said it was a cowardly parade of hatred, bigotry, racism, and intolerance. Now, if there's any group of people on the face of the earth who should reject the belief that one race is superior to the others, it should be us. Because we believe that every person on this globe was made in the image of God. So we can't divorce ourselves from this problem. But let me say to you guys that the key to us solving this problem is not Buddy up here ranting about racism. The key to this problem is us getting out in our neighborhoods, in our place, and be reconcilers of us befriending people that look different than us and adopting people that look different than us and be a part of the answer and not of the problem. And we live in a crazy culture, but we are the called people to go bring peace and understanding and reconciliation. That's what we do. And then another, another way to put this, another two words is gathering and scattering. I love that. We've been using that language all through this service. You know, as a church... Today, we have gathered. That's important. But, but we all need to make sure we understand why we're here today. You say, well, buddy, I, I know the answer. I'm here to worship God, and that's a correct answer. But that is an insufficient, incomplete answer. Hebrews 10, 24 says, don't give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing, but come together to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Because the reason we gather is because we are going to be called in a few moments to scatter. And so we come together to pump each other up. We come together to motivate each other, to love on each other, to encourage each other, so that when we walk out of these doors, there's an explosion of what our country needs, love and good deeds. It explodes. And so if you think the only reason you came here was to check in and check in out of church and to have your time with God, you're wrong. You've come here also to come and let's motivate each other to a place where we're ready to go and be salt and light in a world that desperately needs it. So we scatter and we gather. It's a great combination. 
Now, here's our problem, though. Maybe, maybe it's more my problem. We put an awful lot of effort into gathering, and we should, because we want this to be an attractive place. That's why we have nice carpet and a nice building that's clean, and that's why we've actually redesigned your lifeline so it's not so cluttered in so many words, and it's simpler for a guest to come in and connect with what's going on here. We, we work really hard at that. Jeremy and the praise team work so hard at this being good. Our folks upstairs do an amazing job of coordinating all this. We just take it for granted. We have great youth ministry and children's ministry and camp. All those things are awesome. But here's something, I, I went to a seminar the other day, and, and they really challenged me. They said, the average preacher spends 15 to 20 hours a week on their message. I think that's pretty correct. And, and here's what they said, is if we're going to be missional and we're going to model this, maybe you ought to cut out four or five hours of preparation, find a quicker way to do it, so you can use those five hours to be out in the community and make a difference. You see, guys, we, our goal cannot be that we clutter our lives so full of church activity and withdrawal that we can't be out there in our neighborhoods, in our schools, making a difference. So we, we gather and we scatter. I mean, just think with me for a moment. We're all we're about to scatter over the next 24 hours. We're going to hit almost every corner of this community. How about if we put the amount of attention and even debate and how good we did at scattering that we do about gathering. Last few weeks, from what I've noticed, that'd be a lot of energy. So we gather and scatter. Let me, let me give you one more set of words, and this is my favorite, and this, this is simple enough for everybody. I think what we need to be about is show and tell. That's what we call it, tell our children. We're about to play show and tell. You know, guys, that's, that's why Jesus was so amazingly effective. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the writer says there, these are the things, pay close attention, Jesus began to do and to teach. He showed them, and then he told them. My friends, I believe there's a divine order there. And guys, what we must do is, is we must be the people because, you know what? You may have someone at work that's going to be offended by your invitation or offended by you saying, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Or if you died tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? They're, 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 you're going to do nothing but push them away. But if you live it in such a way that goes, you know what? There is something about your life that is attractive. They may come to the point where you can tell them. Because the reason Jesus was so powerful is this amazing theological idea of the incarnation of God, that God was in flesh, that God moved into our neighborhood, that God came to us. God had been throwing books at us. He had been throwing ideas at us, but it wasn't good enough. He had to come on his own. In fact, the book of John says in John chapter 1, when we saw Jesus... He explained who God is. And my friends, in our culture, that at worst is antagonistic against us. I don't know if you caught it, but church doesn't have the greatest reputation. At best is certainly leery of us. They're not sure they can trust us. We must do both. We must live a life 
As Titus says, it's so attractive and winsome that people will ask us about the hope that's within us, and we must find that moment where we can tell them the good news of Jesus. So I said, buddy, help me out here now. You've been going all these dualistic words. What is more important? That's, that's really sort of a silly question. That'd be like coming up to a parent today and going, is it more important you show your child you love them or tell your child you love them? The truth is, if I'm a good parent, I do both. And the truth is, if we're going to be on this mission for God, we must do both. So let's close out this message. We, got, we have six more weeks to talk about this. A lot of, next week, we're going to get really specific. But I, want, I want to give you some practical steps today to take with you. Step number one, we've got a week of prayer across our community. We have purposely said this next week of prayer, we're not doing it like we normally do it right here at the building, everything here at the building, because we want to exemplify this by changing the proximity. And so there's all these prayer meetings scattered across our community over the next week. You've got to look closely today because it starts tomorrow. If we don't have one close to your work or where a bunch of you guys work, start one. You can go online and watch the little video introduction that will actually introduce it and tell you what to pray about. So let's do that. And then let me give you a personal challenge, a very specific challenge. I want you to pray for the next week. God, help me to love this city like you do. Say that with me. God, help me to love this city like you do. We got we to love our city. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, we had the ex-LSU coach Les Miles speak at our gridiron kickoff. Needless to say, he said a lot of very interesting things in some very interesting ways. But the most fascinating thing I heard him say, we, Tim and I were taking him to the airport, and we're just telling you, it's so much fun to talk to. And in the middle of this, he says to us, i got to tell you guys something. He says, Montgomery's become my second favorite city in the country. And then he says this, number one is Chicago, number two is Montgomery. Isn't it terrible we laugh at that? I thought, man, you are crazier than I thought you were. I mean, Montgomery and Chicago. But you know, guys, sometimes we, we don't appreciate what we have. Honestly, I'm tired of talking bad about my city. And I'm tired of people talking bad about it. I love Montgomery. And I want to pray for a heart like God. Because I'm telling you guys, there's no question that God loves this city with all of its warts and all. I mean, even in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, uh, they're, they're in Babylon. They're in a captive nation. And God says, I want you, my people, to seek the welfare of the city I sent you. Guys, God didn't just place you in Montgomery or Prattville or Millbrook or Pike Road or Hopal or Pentlock uh, or Palisade just, God sent you there. And what God has called us to do, wherever we may be, is to love our city. Because guys, listen to me. If we don't love our city, we can't help our city. If we're going to dog it on every corner, we can't be part of the solution. So pray this prayer every day this week and see what God does in your heart, in my heart. That we're going to love this city like God does. Now let me say this as we close here. 
The foundation of everything I've talked about today is, is what Wes Coring talked about last week, is you following Jesus. You, you see, guys, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to follow Jesus. Jesus was a sent God. And before he leaves, he gives us the same commission. We are a sent people. But listen, if you and I are not becoming more like Jesus, we can't impact the world like Jesus. And and I want to ask you as we close out today, I'm not asking you, please don't misunderstand this question. I'm not asking you, are you perfect? I'm asking you, do you have a life worth imitating? I'm asking you, is your life attractive to someone that's going to say, you know what? You got something there. Would you tell me about it? I mean, you show me something different at school than other people. It's your work. You behave differently. You're a better neighbor than most of us are. Have you you shown it? And and now, would you tell me what's different? And so today, if you're ready to follow Jesus, or today, if, if you need the prayers of this church before you scatter, that you might go represent him well, why don't you come right now while we all stand and sing?